0: Welcome to the Global Business Women's Pod, brought to you by the Greater Houston Women's Chamber of Commerce. I am Susan Dyson, and proud to be the CEO, President, and founder of the chamber. Please join us for this empowering podcast every Thursday at six PM. Now, here's your host, David
1: Linthicum. Welcome back to the Unclad Podcast, Dan. The show, and I am joined by my good friend Lynn Langit. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Hello. So we know each other, we're both LinkedIn learning instructors and probably been running in the same circles for several years. Give the listeners an introduction of yourself, how you got here, what your background was and what you've been doing lately.
0: So I'm an independent cloud architect. I run my own boutique consultancy for 13 years now and I learn, build, teach maybe not in that order, maybe build, learn, teach, how you and I are connected through our many, many courses on LinkedIn learning. We kind of share a student audience since we both are teaching on cloud topics. In addition to that, I've done a lot of work on migration to the cloud for various verticals. Most recently, I've been working with bioinformatics.
1: So you work with different companies on doing consulting and how we're building something. You also teach things, build, teach. What was the other one? Learn?
0: Learn. Yeah, because
1: constantly going.
0: Yeah, we're in it. We're in a constant evolving, maybe more rapid cycle than normal these days with with all the uh the new stuff coming out. So
1: yeah, it's fast and furious. So so what part of that do you like most? Do you like building, learning, or teaching?
0: Well, I like having a balance. If I spend too much time learning, then I'm gonna be poor because I'm not getting paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> if I spend too much time building then I get stuck in the details of the day-to-day. It's important to know that, but I also want to look forward. And if I spend too much time teaching, then I'm too much looking forward. So I really have tried to strike a balance throughout my consultancy.
1: Yeah, I find the same thing. You, you really can't do the teaching without the building and the learning. So you know this this thing where you can operate in a vacuum and just become a teacher and just create content—that's never going to be the case. And also having it's not only learning, but you know having pragmatic applications of what you learn. So the ability not only to learn architectural techniques, but actually work on a project and and build things. So I've been a builder of technology for you know thirty years, and always go to that as the reason why I teach because you're able to instruct people on how to do something purely through your experiences certainly you're learning things which provides a base of what a foundational learning aspect of the stuff but people really are looking for what's the inside baseball stuff how do i build this thing what's important for me to look at what are the you know top 5 things i need to consider really get to this pragmatic application of this technology fairly quickly and i think that's what people are desiring to understand
0: Yeah, the other thing about teaching, especially teaching from a platform, is you grow a worldwide audience. And so you build a community. And when you can, you can't always answer questions, but you start to see commonalities in questions, which point to gaps around vendor offerings or around um, usability or around market needs. So learning has the benefit of learning on your own. But teaching also provides a learning benefit when you teach at scale, in my experience.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. And also allows you to refine your thoughts. And one of the things, like when I write articles and books, it's not only that, but the ability to kind of organize a concept in some sort of a logical way that's more meaning for yourself and so you can get that and therefore explain it to people a bit better and it's one thing to understand something another thing entirely to figure out how to explain it to somebody so they can get the same level of understanding and also mixing this up with the pragmatic stuff we have to build stuff we have to deploy stuff and how do you go off and do that i think is incredibly important as well trifecta so how are things going to change as we're you know going through this kind of revolution or re-revolution in terms of generative ai and in terms of uh, teaching content and our ability to understand things, and how does it relate to cloud? Always the cloud providers are the center of the universe where we're getting get this generative AI technology from. They're going to drive different engines to build content automatically. What changes in our world?
0: Well, the first change is, can I accelerate myself? You know, as a consultant, I'm constantly building POCs across different vendor platforms, different languages, and, you know, it's one of the reasons I allocate time to learning can I adjust that time? How am I going to learn differently? How am I going to use the you know the popular tools out of the box? Am I going to create custom tools? It's, it's kind of a whole new world around learning tooling that I'm starting kind of with my own environment and subcontractors that I work with. What would I expect of my subcontractors in terms of learning?
1: Yeah. And also, where are we doing the redundant work? In other words, where are we working where we can do things and have it automated through this technology where it's not currently automated? I've taken, you know, AI generated courses before and, you know, with simulated voice response, and it's not that bad. So you get very close to understanding and defining how to build these courses. And of course, of course, they're dealing now with a certain amount of information, but eventually, the amount of data that they're going to be able to accumulate, the models are going to be able to train, they're going to be at a point where we're typically going to need to reference those things more often than referencing our own brain. Am I being overly skeptical?
0: No, I don't think so. You know, it's interesting because another way that I look at it is addressing skill gaps for my customers. So lots of times they hire me because they have skill gaps in their teams. And, you know, typically they have classroom instruction or customized instruction because I have been using some of the tools as a beta user now for over a year. I find myself being annoyed, for example, when I open a code IDE and there isn't some sort of Gen AI integrated. It just seems sort of backward once you start using this set of tools. So it really is a spectrum of usage. Another area that I find myself using more and more is I have to get domain expertise in bioinformatics, which is non-trivial. And so the summarization of published papers has been a godsend for me because me pre-gen AI, like looking up terms and trying to figure things out, just was so time consuming. So there's just a number of planes across which I'm getting productivity gain. I'm really wanting to apply that to my uh, customers and to my students. And I'm trying to figure out how to do it.
1: Yeah. And I think we're going through that evolution now. And, and, you know, it's, I think it's changing the game for lots of things. Do you think the cloud providers themselves are going to be able to leverage this technology to create many more skills and certainly for the more detailed skills? So instead of doing cloud architecture and understanding the fundamentals of cloud storage, we're actually looking at a particular storage service and how that works and the API level comparison, things like that. You get down into this tedious level of detail that people need to know to make these things effective. Do you think they're going to leverage this technology to build more skills out there. And of course it's going to be allow them to sell more services, but we'll also be able to create some of the talent that I think we're we need right now in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, not only that, but I mean even more fundamentally gaps that customers still aren't addressing, such as infrastructure as code, you know, something as simple as using incorporated Gen AI and IDEs to make that a possible for some of their teams that maybe are coming out of legacy systems or non-cloud. Because not only application development in modern languages, but, you know, all the surrounding parts and pieces. Another area I think that is going to be quite impactful is improvement of security in cloud, because that's been the ongoing problem since cloud was launched, that there's not been enough security professionals. So I really see this introduction into IDEs is something that I'm advising my customers to pay attention to, in addition to the large language models. You know, I think there's a, a use case for both of them as customers are optimizing for their particular cloud workloads.
1: Yeah, I think it is going to be game-changing moving forward. And, and you're right. I mean, I, you know, deal with, it, when I act with various systems. I am frustrated, too, when I don't see some AI engine that's helping us, you know, understand how we're doing the code. And you can define a baseline application, you know, via an AI system. And you just mentioned infrastructure as code. I think one of the opportunities here now, people are moving into the serverless world. So the cool thing about serverless is it allocates the just the amount of resources you need to run a particular function, and then it returns those resources back to the pool. Some ways that's efficient, some ways it's not efficient but your ability to define infrastructure as code through some automatic generative AI system that's bound to your application code could be a more pragmatic way to do it and get more value out of that technology. you think we're seeing those sorts of moves moving forward where people are looking to leverage the technology to in essence make it cheaper to run cloud services because we're running in a more intelligent and more proactive ways?
0: Yeah I would agree. I think there is you know definitely a movement towards that. In addition to that, we have this whole group of foundational models that launched across the major cloud vendors just recently here, which I would really consider a new category of cloud services. You know, the question is, can you use what's out of the box or are you going to then, you know, in my case, guide your customers to take some of these foundational models and train them with their own, let's say application code data so that something like onboarding a new developer can be accelerated.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned that you know cloud providers have come out with 50 base models. That's amazing the amount of production, you know, that's occurred in a very short period of time. You think that's going to even accelerate more?
0: I do, but again, for my own situation and and uh, contractors I'm working with, you know, there's a lot of hype around this, of course, because uh, there's a lot of potential revenue, and the reality is. We all first need to learn how to use AI when it works, when it doesn't, when it's hallucinating, when the model is a fit for a particular case, before we can go and customize and use these foundational models. Define
1: hallucinating for our listeners.
0: Oh, sure. Hallucinate is a becoming a standard word when the large language models simply return either, um, you know, well, incorrect information. It could be factually incorrect. It could be made up. It's it's because the large language models are just that. They predict the next word. They are not based on any ground truth.
1: Yeah, it is funny. You're getting erroneous information back. because, again, it's garbage in, garbage out. These things are only, I always put it, when I explain generative AI, it's reflective of us. In other words, we're putting out the information, it's returning the same information to us in different organizations and different ways and different ways in which we want to consume it. And in many instances, more logical forms. So it takes the information, write an article about it by, you know, doing different, you know, AI tricks around making that happen. When you get into what this stuff is, It's ongoing learning that really kind of is the power that's going to be there. It's the ability to leverage these LOMs so they can be more productive for us. The ability to look at different vendors and application services. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. You got to be able to know how to ask the questions. So it's it's not that the the AI technology is fantastic. Absolutely, it is. But... We don't know as humans how to use it yet. So I don't think we're getting to the potential of what this technology can do. And we're probably missing some of the deficits that are already there. So what's your advice to someone who's looking to get into this world?
0: Well, I you know, I have a little bit of an unfair advantage because I'm actually trained as a linguist and I speak a number of human languages. And I feel like my time has finally come in the world of cloud application development because I really see uh, English and these LLMs are coming out first with English and then adding other languages. But English rather than some uh, other types of languages being now the ubiquitous cloud language as these tools Mature, which is really a game changer, but English with an asterisk English based on how the model was trained and how the model is designed to work. So it's sort of like learning dialects. And I can make the example across the United States. Probably many of the listeners can relate to this English that's spoken in, uh, you know, the the Southern part of the United States is very different than English that is spoken in the Northern part of the United States. And it's the same with LLMs because they're language-based.
1: So do you think this is going to be about a base level of understanding what a language is, such as English, that it sits in the cloud, and our ability to have derivative models of different dialects off of it? And I think some of that stuff is kind of operating there, but even that to take it to the next level... And get into the biases and behaviors of the particular demographics that it's communicating with, with the language and different ways to motivate people. What I'm getting into is applications for this stuff could be the ability to understand. We have this in recommendation engines for a long period of time who you're dealing with and your ability to communicate with us in more customized ways. They can have better learning experiences or for businesses, better sales experience. They can create the rev- increase the revenue by being more innovative with how we're communicating with the outside world by using these space models and then building these different derivatives on top of it and have this kind of automated, proactive learning in between these various systems where we can improve incrementally as we move forward.
0: Yeah. As an instructor, I'm trying to figure out how I can guide my students. To use these tools and how I can incorporate that in my courses, which is um, I, I certainly haven't solved for it, but it's a question on my mind. So which of the LLMs are going to be most seamless to use, which are going to be have more friction, you know, some experiments that I have done are based on Where, which cloud vendor the LLM comes from, um, what is the quality of programming language support? Because certain cloud vendors have certain biases towards different programming languages. And I have found that the tendency to hallucinate in the less used programming languages in the particular LLM is something to be aware of and useful.
1: In other words, are becoming unproductive out of trying to be more productive because we're getting bad responses back.
0: In the certain languages. So LLM A from vendor A is great at language A, but not language B. LLM B from vendor B is great at language B, but not language A.
1: So how can we prepare our listeners Are you know, thinking in terms of, we know the generative AI stuff is there. People are starting to figure it out. They've seen the wonderful things it's able to do because they're able to write thank you notes. (laughs) where Thank you notes did not exist. And no one knew how to write a thank you note, but evidently we can, you know, do so now. But your ability to, in essence, find an application for this, what should they be looking at right now? Should they be looking at different cloud providers and what aspects of the cloud providers Would they be offering or developing in the market? That should be something that people who are, uh, you know, newbies in the world of uh, generative AI systems should be looking at.
0: So if you don't think about the generative, you just think about the AI. So you can familiarize what you do and the results are different than what you get in the search engines. So you start doing comparative to see. Then once you start to understand that level, as I mentioned, you want to work in your IDEs for whatever incorporated AI tool. You want to start using some of those. After you've done that, then you want to crack open these new 50 base models and figure out if if you have text to text, text to image, what's your use case and start looking at using those out of the box. Because you may be surprised that out of the box, it might provide the value so you don't have to go through the effort of retraining or transfer learning or all the other ways you can augment those models. They might just work for you. And there are starting to be efforts now on the open source community to evaluate the models in terms of how they perform on certain tasks and they are evaluated from other models and they're evaluated from humans and scored. So it's uh, it's this transparency into the quality of the models that I think is going to help their usability.
1: Yeah. And even integration of the models and the ability to have different layers and different ways in which we derive knowledge from existing knowledge, things like that. It's just a fascinating world. And it's, it's kind of amazing that we're this far into technology. But right now, and just having this conversation with you. I feel that we have so much more that we can do. And every time we, we just peel back the onion, there's lots of different technologies that we need to leverage and move in different directions and things we need to understand. So what do you think are going to be the killer applications for generative AI technology in the cloud, say for the next five years? What's going to be that one application or two applications that businesses are able to find that really kind of change the game in terms of leveraging this technology to a more productive end?
0: I do think infrastructure slash security is code, because as long as I've been working in cloud, security and infrastructure automation have been problematic and have cost businesses undue pain and uh, revenue uh, when set up incorrectly. So the automation of those sort of mundane areas, I think, has the potential to really impact the value that customers get out of cloud.
1: Yeah. And that's going to get worse as the deployments out there become more complex with multi-cloud stuff, pervasive cloud deployments, things like that, and the ability to just not have an overreaching infrastructure in terms of how we're monitoring and managing this infrastructure. So that's why we're talking about Metacloud and super cloud. All it is, is the ability to deal with these very complex cloud deployments through layers of abstraction, automation. And by the way, if you're able to weaponize AI to sit on top of that, to make some decisions, and we certainly have AI ops and some other technologies that are working on that space you know then suddenly we're able to increase efficiency and optimization by 50 percent versus what we're seeing today because everybody's leaving instances on and not shutting things down and spinning up too much memory and storage for particular applications there's just so much waste out there in terms of how we're leveraging these resources that we got to figure out some sort of an intelligent way to automate these various systems what are your final words on this
0: you know, I'm always in the details because of the nature of my work. I'm kind of being a smart alec here, but maybe people can finally use Kubernetes. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. It
1: becomes, becomes a uh, architectural religion. So it's uh, people will move forward and become and use it in more smarter ways. Hopefully it's all that and all, all other types of technologies. Talk about serverless. But, you know, the ability to use Kubernetes, some of the cloud native architectures are starting to emerge, use them in better and more intelligent ways. So we're not over applying this technology. And when we're doing so, we're doing so with the optimized amount of resources. Hope that happens. Let's talk about quantum computing and AI. This is a huge area that we seem to be working at. Quantum computing something I've been looking at for a long time. You know, suddenly we have the ability to weaponize quantum computing into a space which is going to make another emerging space, this case AI, much more effective. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I have been dabbling in quantum computing back for many years uh, since I've gotten access to D-Wave way back when. bumped into those folks at the Vancouver airport and got on the beta many, many years ago and you know it's a it's a non trivial nut to crack for somebody who doesn't have a uh, the educational background but the first point i'll make is if if a, a relatively normal architect developer can make progress then the rest of the world can too Particularly with the cloud vendors now, um, offering quantum computing services, not all of them, but most of them are. It's really starting to become relevant for specialty use cases. Now I happen to, you know, work in biomedical imaging, which is one of the use cases. And there are starting to be, you know, papers published on um, QCNN. So quantum convolutional neural networks that show both um, acceleration in time and quality. So how that ties into AI is of course if you can compute on all the things faster you can test your models you can optimize your models you can accelerate ai so i see a convergence of those two things as one of the key areas to pay attention to in terms of the adoption of ai in the cloud
1: yeah i couldn't agree more and i think the cloud services having quantum computing capabilities and quantum computing services is going to you know make this stuff affordable Finally, I mean, quantum computing has been around for a long period of time, but who could afford it? I mean, I was doing AI, you know, back when I first got out of college, but no one could afford how to to, to build those systems at the time. Like Thirty million dollars just to do a simple application, but this kind of makes it on demand as a utility and makes it kind of affordable. And the point you just experienced in leveraging the beta, people can experience themselves for relatively, uh, few amount of money and uh, also find some, some killer use cases in there. You had the Im- image analysis use case, but the ability to do oil exploration and all these other things that are computationally intensive and the ability to do predictive analysis and all these sorts of things that may take three or four weeks to run if we run it on normal infrastructure. But finally, the ability not only to do this, but make it affordable. Is that something you still see in the, f- in the near future?
0: Well, the price of the specialty hardware needs to come down. But, you know, looking at the the uh, need to train Gen AI has done to the GPU war, I think customers are going to benefit. Now, of course, there's additional types of specialty hardware. You know, if you talk about quantum, of course, it's QPUs.
1: Do you define GPUs and QPUs for the listeners, please?
0: Oh, sure. So GPU is a graphics processor unit or chip. It's an alternative to a CPU, mm-hmm. and it allows you to offload certain types of computation. That are um, very related to model training for AI. So linear algebra operations to get kind of nerdy. QPU is a quantum processing unit. So it, you, uh, you have available qubits rather than bits and it allows you to compute on, it can think of a, a sphere basically rather than a up or down switch. And so you have the possibility of computing all the points of a sphere, which is oversimplified, but it helps to give the listeners an idea of when I say all by all by all, the computational possibilities that QPUs uh, provide.
1: Yeah, so I mean, this is where things are moving to. I think this is exciting. I think we have a we have a tendency to overapply this stuff. I think you know the, some of the battles I'm going to get into is I don't think you should build that business application use a quantum computing. However, if the business application needs to do advanced AI, predictive analytics. Then there may be some advantage in making that happen. So we have these you know, kind of use cases to look at in terms of how we're putting the optimal amount of technology to solve the particular problems. And I find that in the AI space, people have a tendency to overestimate and kind of manage by magazine in terms of how they're leveraging the technology. So you think this is going to be a lot of a balancing act in making sure that we don't do things with this technology that shouldn't be done very much like we were dealing with AI 30 years ago?
0: Yeah, the thing that I see on the horizon already, because the cloud providers are, you know, already there, and so they're sharing this with the customers, which is, you know, to use these foundational models and to do transfer learning. I haven't found a customer, and maybe I just you know, I'm in the wrong crowd, but who's ready to do that yet? That's why in this podcast I was talking about my own process. This is a new paradigm in many ways, and you have to walk before you run. So you have to understand what these models do and what they don't do before you go and modify an existing foundational model, or you're just going to waste your time.
1: Yeah. So keep that in mind. Overuse of the technology and applying it in the wrong spaces are going to be something we're going to have to deal with moving forward. We always do that when we move to any sort of technology, but I think specifically in this area where you can make some huge mistakes in terms of over-applying the technology in areas that, that it really doesn't fit. So where can people find more information about you on the web?
0: So I am a prolific publisher to GitHub. I make a lot of samples for various customers and I will publish you know, customer information removed, of course, on my GitHub. I also obviously have many courses on LinkedIn Learning. I write on Medium as well.
1: Great. I'll tell you what, Lynn is the real deal. She knows her stuff and she's got a huge amount of work and experience out there that that proves that she knows her stuff just a huge amount of content huge amount of learning and a huge amount of body of knowledge and work that's extremely impressive so make sure you look her up because she's one of those people that you want to keep an eye on and keep following so if you enjoyed this podcast make sure to like us rate us and subscribe you can also check out our past episodes including those hosted by my good friend mike Cavas. find out more at deloittecloudpodcast.com all one word if you'd like to contact me directly you can email me at L-I-N-T-H-I-C-U-M, at Deloitte.com. So until next time, best of luck with your cloud journey. You guys stay safe. Cheers.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you again next Thursday at 6 p.m. For more information about the Chamber and our podcast, please visit us at ghwcc.org.